And at this time, we will now be turning our attention to the reading and preaching of God's Word. Uh, many of you know that we're going through the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And to help us with the reading for today, I win. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own toil. Well, good morning. We are um, continuing our series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus here is teaching us how to live a new kind of life. How to, despite the brokenness of, of the world, how to live a life of flourishing that really helps bring healing and flourishing to our world. And here Jesus um, addresses really two related topics. The topic of ambition and the topic of anxiety. And these are timely topics for us. Anxiety is at an extreme high here in Canada, particularly in Ontario, apparently, according to recent surveys. Um, A survey of all Canadian provinces just done in mid-April showed that the amount of people reporting high anxiety has more than quadrupled during the time of COVID. And the amount of people suffering serious depression has doubled. Uh, The mental health research Canada Institute uh, found that 61% of Canadians are now experiencing substantial anxiety and 33% are experiencing some real levels of depression. High levels doubled, many quadrupled. So how do we deal with the anxiety that is afflicting almost all of us to some degree or another? Jesus here gives us two prescriptions for our anxiety. Firstly, rest rightly. Secondly, seek rightly. Rest light rightly. Rest in the God who is there, who calls himself our Heavenly Father. Seek rightly. Seek God's kingdom and not our own. Rest rightly. Seek rightly. Let's look at those two. Here, in resting rightly, Jesus, in the first part of this passage, begins it with the word, therefore. He's clearly building on an argument he's been making in this whole sermon, this whole discourse. And whatever he just said, and what he just said was, you cannot serve God and money, is meant to inform this discussion. He said, lay up treasures in heaven where those treasures cannot rust or be destroyed. Don't serve 
money serve God. So Jesus, just before this, was contrasting a way of life primarily concerned with how we're doing in this life, here and now. Contrasting that with a way of life that is primarily concerned with how we are going to live in the life to come. And this discussion about anxiety tied to that overall theme says this. If you are primarily focused on maximizing your comforts, your success, your ease, your pleasures in this world, then you're putting all your eggs in the wrong basket. You're, you're climbing the wrong ladder. You've chosen the wrong path when two paths diverged in the wood. Have I used enough cheesy metaphors? You get what I mean. Jesus is saying there are two ways of living. Here, the life of anxiety versus a life of peace. And Jesus says, who and what you rest in makes all the difference. Jesus says, do not be anxious. The Greek word for anxiety here means to have an anxious fear about the future, or in its positive meaning, to adopt fully the care of another person. But those two, both the positive and the negative meanings of this Greek word, have the same connotation, control. To care for someone in this, in this way is to take control of their care. To worry about the future in this way is to assume control of the future into your own hands. Timothy Lane, noted uh, author and Christian counselor, co-author of the book How People Changed, described this Greek word as overconcern or worry. Lane says that how a Christian can spot the difference between a regular and good concern for something, which is fine, and an over-anxious worry is this way. He says, concern takes wise action and prays dependently, but worry or over-concern thinks and acts as though everything is up to you and prays desperately, if at all. You see, Lane is zeroing in on what that Greek word means. It means to control. And by the way, so does Jesus. Jesus, after telling us not to be anxious, gives us two examples of how we don't need control. The first example is birds. They neither sow crops nor harvest them, he says. In other words, they don't architect their own food from start to finish, but they trust God working through nature to provide the food they need. Now, of course, they work for that food. They go out and forage for that food. It's not, this isn't a, an argument for pure passivity. They collect it. They feed their young. But at the most fundamental level, they trust in nature and the author of nature, God himself, to ultimately provide their food. Secondly, lilies. They neither toil nor spin, but God arrays them, makes them beautiful, Jesus says. And so what Jesus is saying here is not some precise thorough theological treaties on all the issues surrounding food and poverty and famines. There are all kinds of questions that that need to be and can be raised. Uh, But Jesus is making a simpler point, a bigger picture point, what what academics or apologists might call a worldview point, and that is this. Who is actually feeding the birds and who is actually clothing the field? God is. There is a God who is there who is here. He is here and he is not silent, says philosopher and apologist, Christian thinker Francis Schaeffer. He is the ultimate starting point or presupposition. We're not in control. There's someone in heaven who is. Now, some of us struggle with this idea. When we see the ugly brokenness of our world, we often say, how can such a God even exist? But I think what we need to say is this. We really have two choices here. 
Either someone, God, is in control, or he isn't, and you are left to your own devices. Before I was a Christian in university, I read L'Etranger in university uh, by Albert Camus, one of the most formative books for 20th and 21st century culture. You cannot understand where we've come from and where we are in our culture without understanding its argument. In L'Etranger, the protagonist kills someone and is facing the death penalty. His name is Marceau. While waiting in jail, a priest comes to visit him. He's basically waiting for to be executed. And the, the priest tries to get him to have some faith in God. It fails utterly. It actually becomes quite angry. The priest says, have you no hope at all? And do you really live with the thought that when you die, you die and nothing remains? Yes, I said. And then the protagonist, Marceau, says, It was as if that great rush of anger had washed me clean, emptied me of hope, and gazing up at the dark sky spangled with its signs and stars for the first time, the first, I laid my heart open to the benign indifference of the universe. To my generation of young intellectuals and progressives, this was pure gold. This gave us a heroic reason, counterpoint way of thinking to to believing in God. It allowed us to leave our belief in God behind. But I needed to ask myself a few years later the question I need you to ask yourself. Do you actually believe the universe is benignly indifferent? Do you really want to rest in that? Look at the turmoil of the world. Look at the, the brokenness of the pandemic. Look at, look at the racism deeply embedded in our and so many cultures over so many centuries. Look at the sex slave industry, which is corrupting so many of our... I could go on and on. Is this world benign? No. The whole point of your objection against God, God is actually that the world is dark, broken, and corrupted. So if all you have to rest in is a dark, broken, and corrupted universe, I submit to you, as Camus begins to hint in the novel that you need to embrace a kind of despair. But the gospel says there's a better answer. By the resurrection from the dead, by this human being named Jesus, in human history, we can know that we are not alone. There is a God in heaven who loves us. There is one who is in control, who is in heaven, and in Jesus' terms is a heavenly Father to those who rest in Him. His relationship with us is vastly more personal, vastly more intimate, vastly more reassuring than any relationship we can have with creation and any relationship this text says that he has with creation. He loves the lilies as their creator. He loves the birds as their provider. But he loves his own as a loving, adopting father. See, that's the argument from lesser to greater. If God can be trusted in to feed the birds, one who relates to you as a heavenly father can absolutely be trusted in to take care of of you. So God lays before us two ways to live. Rest in nothing, which ends up resting in yourself, or rest in your heavenly Father. Which way is resting rightly? A couple quick implications. First one, I, I know that it 
to try and retain control of your life for yourself is very natural to you. It feels natural to you. Our whole technologically driven society moves towards greater and greater self-control. It's natural in this sense. It's what we do by our nature. But that doesn't make it right. It's wrong in so many ways, says the gospel. You see, we are all control freaks by nature. All have a corrupted heart. We all want to play God. Wanting to control your universe. Wanting to play God, as it were, always leads to anxiety. Because deep inside of you, you know you can't control the universe. Bonnie McCune, the, the writer, put it this way, we are handicapping ourselves by not admitting that there are limits to what we can know and control. From a Christian perspective, John Calvin, speaking about this verse, said, immoderate care, that's his word for anxiety, is condemned because people claim more for themselves than they have a right to do and place such a reliance on their own efforts that they neglect to po- call upon God or rest in God. They're resting in themselves. I submit to you, the only way to dethrone anxiety is to have someone to rest in that has actual control of things and has a reassuring love for us. And the God of the universe, what Jesus calls your heavenly Father, is that one. I remember several years ago, several years ago, uh, a man and a woman uh, came into the office I was working in. It was a Christian uh, organization. They had a medical emergency. It looked terminal. And they came in, and with many tears, they described what was happening. They asked for us to pray for them. And and the woman said, look, I've been a Christian a long time, but i got to admit, when things like this happen, it feels like we've fallen through the cracks. God has forgotten about us. She said, there are two things that when life goes south, you always need to have to help you. One, that God's in control. Two, that God is good and cares for you. Somewhere I don't, I think a crack has opened in my belief in that. But Jesus says, he's your heavenly father. He's in control and he's your father. He loves you. He adores you. He cares for you infinitely. How do I know? Because the one who rose from the dead to tell us that there is a God is the one who rose from the dead to prove beyond all doubt that God is for us because he is the beloved son of that God and he died for us. He died in our place. Now you may say, well, if my life doesn't show that right now, COVID's going on. I just lost my job because of COVID. Uh, I have a right to be anxious. Um, Surveys are coming out that all kinds of us now, in light of our anxiety, are using coping mechanism. We're reading way more. We're watching Netflix way more. more. These, These are not bad things. Coping mechanisms are needed when anxiety threatens to overwhelm you. But they are coping mechanisms. They don't dethrone anxiety. Jesus says, stop looking around at your circumstances to create your anxiety and stop looking around at this world to cope with your anxiety. Look up to God, your heavenly Father, to find a way to dethrone anxiety and bring peace into your life. John Calvin said the only cure is to embrace the promises of God by which he assures us that he will take care of us. Rest rightly. Rest in the God who calls himself the heavenly Father of all who will come to him. Secondly, seek wisely. 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus here gives us this second remedy to dethroning anxiety. Rest rightly, now seek wisely. Having rested in your soul, in God, then with your mind, your will, your actions, seek wisely. Change what you're seeking. Seek first, Jesus says. And when he, when he says first, he doesn't mean temporally first, first in sequence. He means priority first. Seek always, as your first priority, the kingdom of God. Now, again, here, Jesus is just giving a broad set of parameters. He's not, there's no detailed treaties on exactly what it means to seek the kingdom and what the kingdom is. Like, books thicker than my jowls have been written on, on what that exactly means. But he just wants to make a broad orienting point here. Whose kingdom are you building? Remember his last words, you can't serve God and money? Why would he say that? And how does that relate to this? Well, the New Testament speaks a lot about money. Jesus talks a lot about money. He addresses it more than just about any other topic. Why? Because we can serve money because it's the gateway drug to all the things that our hearts desire. Control, power, approval, comfort, pleasure. These things we think make us feel whole. I've done all kinds of personality profiles in my life. Um, they all say the same thing. I love to have control or power over my environment. I love to have the ability to control or influence the environment and the people around me. They, they have different wordings, but they all come to the same idea. And money is a gateway drug to having control and power over your environment. It just is. Money gives us the ability to pursue the things that our heart craves to make us feel whole. Money, therefore, allows us the opportunity to serve these functional replacements for God, these idols. It allows us to build our own kingdom, to serve our own personal idols of approval or power or control or success or reputation. That's the real truth about us. That's what we chase with our schedules, our choices, and dreams. That's what fuels our ambition. So Jesus is saying here, circling back to what he said so many times in this sermon, your ambition needs to be relocated. You need to be ambitious about building my kingdom and not your own. You can be ambitious at work, by the way. You can be ambitious in your vacation life. You can be ambitious with your hobbies. That's fine. Jesus is saying your whole orientation is not to not be ambitious, but what are you ambitious about? What are you trying to build? If it's your own glory, your own power, control, comfort, your own success, then it's about you and your kingdom. And Jesus says, no. Relocate your ambition to seek God's kingdom. Seek wisely. Live your life. Chart progress in your career to ultimately glorify God, to please me, to bear witness to me. Now, some people, even people who are Christians, really have trouble with this because this kind of life is hard. You know it. I know it. It's very countercultural. It's countercultural to your own selfish desires and ambitions. It's countercultural to your work desires and ambitions. It's countercultural to our culture's desire to be self-righteous, to seek comfort, to judge others. Absolutely. 
It means we're called to work differently. We'll be called to lead differently than the cultural dem- actually demonstrates and values leadership. The leadership of our culture is over people. Jesus' version of leadership is to come alongside people and then to serve under them, to help them flourish. That's really hard. You don't get brownie points on your resume, usually, for doing that. You'll need to value integrity over advancement, that your character matters more than your resume, that your love for people exceeds your love for results. You need to be willing to stand in the gap and sometimes call out discrimination or sexism or racism when people don't want to hear it. In fact, when I was a young Christian, I remember getting tired of all of this. I just wanted like, hey, is is there like an express card just to go to heaven? This is so hard. This is so tiring. Working this out is so self-more... If heaven is so great, why not just go straight there? And I actually remember a deacon in, in a church I was at not too many years ago, while I was living in the United States. Just got getting tired of having to fight the grind of being a father and a husband and a business leader. And he had some mental health issues, but he took his own life. And he admitted in his, in his words and notes that he left, he just got tired. You know, living for God's kingdom and not yours is hard. It's a daily struggle to keep your motivations in the right place. Absolutely. It's a daily fight not to give in to the temptation to build your own kingdom. You know, Russian philosopher and civil rights leader Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his address to Harvard University's graduating class, if he's right, then what he says is so true. The line between good and evil runs right through every human heart. The fight is real. The struggle is hard. Is it worth it? Is it, to do the hard, is it hard to do the hard work of daily combating racism in your heart and in others? Is it hard worth to advocate and care for marginalized people, to help the, the, the broken and the hurting of your coworkers when all your corporate culture wants you to do is talk about the next project, the next opportunity for advancement? Sure, all of that is hard. Is it worth it? That's the question that's coming up in my soul and probably yours. And the answer to that question, Jesus says, is by answering another question. Is he worth it? Is God's kingdom worth it because God is worth it? And Jesus' answer to you and to me is, he is your heavenly father. He's worth it. He knows what you need. Trust him in your seeking, in your ambition, as well as in your resting with your anxiety. Because that father is the heavenly Father who sent from heaven His one and only heavenly Son to bring us home into His family, His heavenly family. And Jesus, the heavenly Son, all of His life, every day, every hour, every moment, He sought the kingdom of God. And when He was rejected and tired, He didn't give up. He didn't say, just take me now. He didn't just go and take His own life. He waited and He worked. And he lived and he obeyed because we were worth it. And finally, at the end, he could say to his father, I have accomplished everything that you gave me. And he did not worry about what he ate. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He did not worry about his clothing. He wandered about with the simplest of clothing and then allowed it to be stripped from him so he could go do his Father's will and bring in his Father's kingdom by going naked to a cross. Because on the cross, a symbol of rejection and moral wrongdoing, it's where criminals go, 
he went and he took the moral wrongdoing of you and of me. And on the cross, he gave up his life. He didn't worry about his life, but freely gave it as an offering and poured out his blood to pay for the guilt of you and for me. And on that cross, he said, I thirst because he did thirst and because he'd also forsaken thirsting so that he could be thirsty. And then in his thirst, he drank a cup, the cup of the judgment of God for your sin and mine. You see, on that cross, he became our substitute, our scapegoat. And what we need to realize is that unlike Merceau, Albert Camus' protagonist, who said, that I embrace the benign indifference of the world. This is what Jesus showed us is actually true. When you pass through death, there is more than the nothing of the book, The Stranger, L'Etranger. You will meet God in the end, not a benignly indifferent universe that does not care what you did, both right and wrong, but you will meet an infinitely personal and moral God who cares infinitely about everything you've ever done. And you will either meet God alone as your judge. And you will have to answer for everything wrong that you have ever done. Or you will meet God with Jesus standing there as your advocate. Jesus standing there in front of him saying, This one, this one had all their wrong paid for. This one had all their selfishness, their personal kingdom building life forgiven. This one is on your adopted list. This one I died for. This one accepted by faith the grace that I offered on the cross. This one is no guilty criminal. This one is your beloved child. Take off your robes. Go meet your new child. And your heavenly father will come and embrace you as the one who adopts you. A couple of quick applications. Rest in God as he reveals reveals himself to you in Jesus. If you're here and you're still investigating Christianity, for the first time I ask you, know that he is the God who is there, who has come down into here by his Son, and forgiven the sins you have that are here, in here, and there before God's eyes. And experience his forgiveness. And experience Him for the first time as your Heavenly Father. And let His love thrill you and pour itself into you. But if you're here and you're a Christian, you like that couple who had that unbelievable crisis in their life, you will always be tempted with one of these two questions. Is God really in control? And is He really for me? Does He really love me? Build up your faith in those two things. Take this month and read the Gospel of Mark just quickly and read how much Jesus suffered and endured and did for you. Feel his goodness. And then read books or take Howard McPhee's class that's coming in July that we're about to announce on the sovereignty and the providence of God. Read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Read Trusting God by Jerry. Read books that solidify your knowledge of God that you will never doubt that he is in heaven, the one who controls all things, the sovereign one. But the one who is in heaven is your beloved Father. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you in your goodness and in your grace. You have made a way for us to be your children and for you to be our heavenly Father. And in this time of great anxiety, may we rest rightly, rest in you. And in this time 
of great confusion. May we make it our life goal that in everything we do, in our leisure and in our work, in our resting and in our doing, in our relationships and in our solitude, may we make it our ambition to seek you and your kingdom. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.